Hello, I'm Lydia McGrew. Welcome back to the Lydia McGrew channel. Last time we were talking about factual independence between sources. And this week I want to connect that concept of factual independence to the clue of casualness and connect both of those ideas to undesigned coincidences. And today I'll be using a hypothetical modern example. The next time my plan is to apply this to a, uh, a biblical example of a claimed undesigned coincidence. So as we talked last time, we realized that what we want in, in having multiple attestation, where we talk about multiple attestation to the facts, and that can be very powerful um, at confirming a given proposition, as in this case where the facts are up here and we have two different sources telling us, both telling us that these are the facts and that this took place. That can lead to um, a lot of extra confirmation. And of course, if you've got more than two, all the better. But you'll notice that we have lines of information going from the facts to both of these sources. So the idea is that these sources both, some way or another, actually know something about what happened and that one is not simply dependent on the other for the facts and that they are not both simply dependent on some single intermediate source um, that they're just both using without their own separate information about what happened. In contrast, here's one scenario where we have no factual independence. There are others, I'm not going to show uh, that particular diagram today, but in this particular case of no factual independence, you really only have one line of support for the facts. Now, I want to emphasize this could still be a case where both sources are completely telling the truth. Okay, um, it's just that source B doesn't have any other information about what happened, what really happened, than source A. So what source B is telling you that is a real piece of information he is obtaining from source A. Another situation that um, could happen, and this would be where we'd really start to get doubts about the accuracy of source B, would be if we were absolutely convinced that this was our factual situation, uh, that source B really had no line to the facts other than source A, but source B has additional details or information about the incident that they are both reporting. Because if that's the case, and source B has no separate line of true information back to what happened, then anything that is extra that he contains will be invented. It will not be the truth. So if, if we're convinced in some other way that this is the scenario and we find extra information about a supposed event in source B, we're going to conclude that that is made up, added, embellished, which will, of course, negatively affect our estimate of the reliability of source B. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> as I discussed last time, you find a lot of gospel scholars that are really convinced that this is what's going on between certain gospels, especially the synoptics. 
um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So I'm going to give you a biblical example here of a scholar who is convinced that this is the scenario and therefore that source B is in fact changing the facts. And that is Mark Goodacre when it comes to the parables of the Ten Talents in Matthew and of the Minas, a unit of money in Luke. Now, Goodacre's idea there is that Jesus really only told the parable of the talents and that Luke then would be the source B in that no independence scenario and that Luke wanted to uh, essentially invent a second parable that was somewhat similar to the parable of the talents, but that Jesus didn't really tell. And they're, they're uh, reported as being told on separate occasions in Matthew and Luke as well. So on the face of it, they appear to be two different, but just somewhat similar parables. But Goodacre's idea is that the parable of the minas is just a result of Lucan redaction of the information found in Matthew. Um, and so then certain faults that he attributes to the uh, parable of the minas, he attributes to Luke's just, you know, not being as good a storyteller as Jesus. So that would be a case where a scholar is committed to this kind of scenario, and then there's something different in source B, and then he just assumes that that's just due to a non-factual redaction of source A. And then that obviously is going to uh, have a negative impact on our view if, if we think that's the correct model of Luke's factual accuracy. Uh, another example would be the quite quite liberal scholar Jörg Frey, who um, thinks, and this is probably true as far as it goes, thinks that John was familiar with Mark's gospel. Fine, I think John was familiar with Mark's gospel, but Frey then says that um, what's found in John that's not found in Mark is just a redaction of Mark, and that the additional material, and there is of course a great deal of additional material in uh John that's not in Mark owes itself rather to John's theological uh, agendas and so forth rather than being evidence of a different source for the life of Jesus. So Fry is applying that no factual independence model on a very broad scale to the relationship between Mark and John and, and then using that to say that John is not factually accurate and reliable in the additional information he gives us about the life of Jesus. So, once again, that dependence diagram doesn't at all have to mean that um, either source is not telling us the truth, but <clears throat> if there is additional information in source B, not found in source A, and we think that that is the correct scenario, then source B is giving us non-factual information that he's adding to source A. And that's in addition to the fact that uh, we only have a single attestation of whatever the fact is up at the top that we're interested in. So uh, an incident here where I think is both are telling the truth, but we don't have more than one attestation, is the story of um, the calling of the sons of Zebedee and also Peter and Andrew as given in Mark and in Matthew. Um, I don't see any additional information in one of those that, um, you know, is not found in the other. They seem to just be 
one based on the other or both based on a common source. Um, so whether you take Markan priority or Mathian priority, they just appear to both be accounts of the same incident that are factually dependent. I think completely true, but only one attestation to the incident. Okay, now enter undesigned coincidences and the virtue of casualness to serve as a clue that we have more than one source. So for now, I'm just going to do a hypothetical modern example, and then next time I'll be applying this to a biblical example. Let us suppose that you are investigating a claim of a bank robbery, and I've used this before. I'm going to uh, add a few things here today that I've never added before, but you're investigating this and you're interviewing people on the spot. And just to make it somewhat more like the case of the Gospels, you don't, going in there, know for sure how many of the people you're going to be interviewing were actually witnesses of the event. So you could have um, people who maybe got it at second hand from someone else who witnessed the event, or you could even have people who are pretending that they witnessed it, but they didn't really, or whatever. Okay, so what you have to do is use clues from their statements and try to gather other evidence to find out who was really in the bank at the time, who's really giving you a witness account, okay, and, and whether they're accurate or not. I mean, even witnesses can make things up. So you interview the first person, and this person describes the clothing of the alleged bank robber. And he says, you know, the color of his hat and uh, the color of his jacket, and he mentions that he was wearing brown shoes, and he says, and one of them was untied. And then he just goes on with the rest of his, the rest of his discussion. And then you interview the second person. And the second person is really focusing on the movements of the alleged bank robber. And after telling you, you know, various things, what he said and so forth, he says, uh, and when he ran out the door, he tripped and almost fell. And then he recovered himself and ran away. Okay, he just moves on. Now, in each of these cases, the fact about, or the claimed fact about the untied shoe and the tripping on the way out, each of these are mentioned casually. Now, I want to say that casualness, in my opinion, is intrinsically contrastive. We might say someone mentioned something casually rather than emphatically, right? Someone mentioned something casually rather than um, insisting on his own truthfulness about it or something is mentioned casually as opposed to symbolically. So, you know, the first guy doesn't say, you know, his shoe was untied and that reminded me of um, the way that everything had come untied because he was robbing the bank or something weird like that. Um, something is mentioned casually rather than being deliberately connected to something else. 
Now to explain what I mean by this last contrast, I want to give you an alternative scenario for the second interviewee. Let us suppose that the second interviewee overhears your interview with the first one and that he steps up and interrupts the discussion and says, oh, <clears throat> he says, I noticed that when the robber ran out, he tripped and almost fell. I bet that was because his shoe was untied. I just heard this person mentioning that his shoe was untied, and I bet that was the reason for what I saw, that he tripped and he almost fell. Okay, now, that second person is not mentioning the tripping casually in the sense that he is trying to connect it with what the first person said. Uh, the detective, uh, ex, um, cold case detective J. Warner Wallace has mentioned that real witnesses of events sometimes do consciously try in that way to supplement one another. Um, so that could be completely truthful, what that person is saying. But he's not saying it casually. He's saying it because he overheard the first person, and he's saying it because he's kind of trying to stick in his his or and refer to what that first person said. Whereas in the in the first case, they're both mentioning it casually. Neither of them appears to have the other thing in mind. In fact, even if the person did trip because his shoe was untied, neither of them appears to be even thinking of that whole scenario. The first person is just is just mentioning that his shoe was untied. If he knows that he tripped, he doesn't even mention it, and he doesn't seem to be trying to connect them. And the same with the second person. If he knows that the shoe was untied, he doesn't, he, he doesn't seem to be trying to connect them, and he might not even know it. Now that's, in that, that first scenario, that's an un, what we call an undesigned coincidence, a coincidence. And it's pretty powerful as evidence for this that we have two different sources that both have lines of information coming to them from the facts. Because the fitting together of the shoe, the untied shoe and the tripping, appears to be merely a result of the real cause and effect relationships that take place that obtain in the real world. It doesn't seem that that connection is um, resulting from one of the people trying to refer to the other. Now, we may have other, other evidence that we really do have two separate witnesses here. But as far as just that connection between the untied shoe and the tripping, when the second guy comes and sticks his oar in and says, I just want to mention that, he tripped, and I bet that was because his shoe was untied. That does not help us to rule out this. And let's suppose we have this going on, and that the second guy is just pretending to be a witness, and that the tripping is, let's suppose, an embellishment that he invented. As I said, we, have, we may have other evidence against that. We may have other evidence of his complete truthfulness. 
But as far as his mention of that tripping fact, it's not nearly as strong as it would be if he did not appear to be aware of and did not appear to be referring to the untied shoe fact. His bringing it up in that conscious way, that designed way to connect them, maybe he's completely telling the truth. Maybe he is just wanting to supplement and be helpful. But maybe he overheard what the first guy said and he thought, hey, you know, maybe I could uh, make myself look more like I was there by tying in something else with that. And so maybe he invented that thing about tripping and is deliberately adding it to make himself look like he has something important to add. I'm not even saying that's likely, but what I am saying is that when you don't have that undesignedness, it's a little bit harder to rule that out. When you have that undesignedness, it just arises completely naturally from the way that they're telling it, from their apparent casualness, from the fact that they don't appear to be trying to relate those facts to one another, that they really do appear to be factually independent witnesses. And that's how casualness is a clue to real undesignedness. And what you find uh, often when scholars are uh, trying to criticize the few who have even interacted with the claim of undesigned coincidences is that they'll just claim, oh, well, you know, th this is what we have. And the second guy, okay, you know, John has more information about that incident than uh, Mark does, but he's just making it up. But the problem is when the, the things that we find in Mark, let's say, or in Luke, about that incident fit together in a seemingly undesigned way with what we find in John, they haven't explained that connection. They haven't, and that connection appears to obtain in reality and not even to be something that the authors themselves are aware of, much less trying to exploit. And I'll say more about that with a biblical undesigned coincidence example next time. But you can see how that is in the case of the tripping bank robber that I've given today. So that begins to tell us how casualness is a clue to independence. Come back next time when I'll be talking about how casualness as a clue to factual independence applies in the case of Philip in the feeding of the 5,000. Thanks for watching. I'm Lydia McGrew, and you're watching the Lydia McGrew channel where we make common sense rigorous.